from PRI Public Radio International. From PRI Public Radio International. Public Radio. Public Radio International. Here is the dream. Expressed as concisely, I think, as anybody ever has expressed it. I hold in my hand a handwritten sign that was photocopied and pasted up around the San Francisco area. In big letters at the top, it says, Play guitar for $5. There are two underlines underneath that. Then in smaller letters underneath, it says, I don't give guitar lessons. I give one lesson. In that lesson, I will teach you three chords for five bucks. Ever see those mindless junkies up on stage banging out that pre-adolescent bull, waving their hair around, getting free drinks and other favors? Now, are they better than you? Because they know three chords, and you don't. So, for a quarter of what you'd spend getting drunk and watching their crappy band, I'll teach you all you need to know. If you're sick of talking and want to start rocking, give me a call and give me a five, and I'll show you how. And then uh, underneath the guy's name, Michael Dean, punk rock and roll fantasy camp, then his phone number, and the important words which follow, call at noon only, underline only. I bring it up here. By the way, this is um, from WBEZ Chicago, this, this American Life of Myra Glass. I bring it up here because this is the dream. This, this right here, this sums it up. The dream of what we want when we start taking classes. Our dream is it's going to be easy, it's going to be quick, it's going to be cheap, and that we're going to be transformed by someone who is completely confident of that fact. He's just going to give it to us, and then it's just going to happen, and then we're going to be done. This, this is the dream that we carry with us into any kind of lessons of any sort. Guitar, dancing, tennis, meditation, pottery, screenplay writing. Well, we are back here on our program for another week, documenting everyday life in these United States. Each week, as you know, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and performers and documentary producers to take a whack at that theme. Today's theme is Lessons, Act 1, Ski Lessons, and in that act we are pleased to bring in Spalding Gray, a man who is sometimes called the premier teller of monologues in America. Act 2, Swimming Lesson, that'll be a story from our own Scott Carrier. Act 3, How to Fire a Potato in a Graceful Arc 450 Feet in the Air, a lesson on that. Act 4, well, We'll just get back for when we do. Stick around and learn, okay? Yeah, you can tell we're having the big star on today. Because <laughs> we're using the big movie music. Klieg lights sweeping across the studio ceiling. I wish you could see it in here. It is actually... i got to turn this music off. <laughs> Hold on for a second. I'm just going to take that out. Let me switch to another song here. Yeah, that'll do. As I was saying, it's a great pleasure to welcome Spalding Gray to our program. Gray is probably best known for his monologue, Swimming to Cambodia, which was made into a feature film a few years back. He's traveled the country for years with various monologues, Monster in a Box, Gray's Anatomy. If you haven't seen him, what he does is he basically just sits on stage with a table and a glass of water and some notes in... 
the most nondescript clothes possible, clothes that make no statement at all. And he tells these stories. It's, it's, it's interesting, actually, for those of us who have followed Spalding Gray's work, this monologue. It's called It's a Slippery Slope. Because um, unlike some of them, it's a story in which he's really transformed. Um, at the end of the story, he is really a different person than he is at the beginning. Um, in, two, in two ways, that transformation takes two parts. One, he leaves his long-term relationship, this woman who's just been with for years and years and years, for another woman and has a baby with this other woman. And the other thing is, he learns to ski. We're going to uh, play you a long excerpt of the skiing stories he tells. Spawning Gray tells the audience that he hates lessons in school of all types, does miserably in any kind of formal learning setting. But somebody gets it in his head that what he wants to do is he wants to ski. Skiers just seem glorious and athletic. And he and his longtime companion, Renee, decide to take a lesson. So there we are, standing there in a beautiful, clear, cloudless spring day, and our ski professor, the instructor, comes out and announces that he used to be a heart surgeon. Now he's retired and doing what he's always really wanted to do, ski instructing. And aren't you lucky to be here on one of the most beautiful slopes in America, so he says, standing at 150 inches of packed powder under a cloudless blue sky, looking out over the edge of the Grand Canyon, the rim. And so we were, and so it was spectacular. And we began to do the first moves, the snowplow. And we start down. It's a bit awkward, but I am staying balanced. The skis aren't splitting me too much. And Renee and everyone else in the class is doing fine. And we go into the turns for the traverse. And people are going right, left. And I find that for some reason, I never have found out why, I only could turn left. (laughs) But I was doing that fine. I was doing these great traverses. Left and snowplow down and take the lift up and left and down and left. (laughs) High, left, left. I couldn't come around right. I couldn't. I thought I had to think my way around into it. And Renee now has finished the lesson, is up on the porch saying, let's get going. We're going to miss our plane. So Renee, I, I don't think I can go. I have, to, I have to turn right on skis. I'm going to do it like you. I've got to do it. Spald, come. There'll be another time. What if there isn't? In the car, I am completely dejected, depressed. She's driving. I'm in a big slough. I'm in a slump going, oh, no, failed again. We get to the Phoenix airport. And we go in and we're just checking on the bags and something seizes me. I go, I just freeze up and go, I get, I'm not going. I can't, uh, wait, wait, uh, no, no, I, uh, I got, uh, I've got to turn right on skis. It's as simple as that. Uh, excuse me, ma'am. Wait, um, no, no, you put the bags, I, I, uh, wait, uh, ma'am, is there, wait, there's a motel up there, isn't there? Up at that ski slope? Mr. Gray, I am here to check you on for the Newark flight. I am not a travel agent. Are you uh, flying with us? I can't, uh, wait a minute, Renee, uh, you go ahead. I'm gonna go up there and, uh, maybe I can go back to Davis. I don't, uh, oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, Jesus Christ, I can't, uh, 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 oh, and she's going over to talk to the head stewardess saying, I think there's someone here that should not be flying with us today. <laughs> Renee leads me over, uh, meanwhile, and she's saying, what is going on? I said, Renee, listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm tired of being a vicarian. I want to live a life, not tell it. I don't want to do a monologue about not being able to turn right on skis. I want to just do it. I, I can't. I, oh, she goes, time for intervention. I'm calling your brother. <laughs> she calls my brother, Rocky, in St. Louis and says, I can't. I'm here in the Phoenix airport. Spud won't get on the plane because he can't turn right on skis. <laughs> I'll put him on. All right. Hi, Rock. I'm, I'm doing well turning left. I know I could be a skier. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. I can't turn right. Well, don't you have a hard life. 
Well, as the story goes, Spalding Gray does, in fact, get on the plane and does return to New York City. But he remains obsessed with this idea that he is going to learn to ski and he is going to finally turn right. And um, so obsessed with it, in fact, he says at one point how he, start, he actually starts to watch skiing videos. They're unbelievable. They're like porn films. <laughs> I mean, similar exhibitionistic gymnastics, similar music. Similar vicarious, God, I feel lonely. I wished I was in the center of that feeling. Eventually, Spotting Gray does finally get to ski with an acquaintance named Barney on this picture-perfect day out on a mountain in California. Day glow tape is pulled. Barney and I start up with all of the locals. And we begin to ski, and I find I'm only going left. I'm going left into the bushes, coming out the other side with branches in my mouth. Like a Botticelli. And... I say, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't bother you. I know i got to do this on my own. You go ski. I'm going over to Meadow. I go over to Meadow, the green slope. And I am inspired that day. When I see what I see, it's the adoptive ski school. And they are taking quadriplegics out of wheelchairs and putting them in gondolas with these little ski runners. And they have poles with skis on them. And I think, Spalding, if you can't turn right on this slope today, give it up. Now, I have no instructor. I'm trying to do this on my own. And I begin, and I'm left in crashing. And yard sale. All stuff is all over. Picking up my stuff. But you know what I'm impressed by is how wildly I can crash and still get up without anything broken. <laughs> and it's left and crash. And left and crash. And then it happens. It's the ineffable. I can't tell you how it happens. All the time I think I had to think myself around. It was just a shift of weight, and I never experienced this in my life except in 1946 on Thanksgiving Day when I first learned how to pump on a swing. I suddenly turned right, or something turned me right, and then left, right, left, boom, down. But I was up again, left, right, left. People would ski by me real fast, I'd crash. People would ski by me and fall, I'd crash. I was in such empathy. <laughs> or I'd be skiing and thinking, you're doing it, you're skiing. Crash. It was so beautiful. It was like Zen, but a little not as subtle, you know. If you weren't present, you crashed and a mountain hit you. I mean, and I realized at that point in all my life, I'd been doing a kind of subtle suicide to myself. I'd always be somewhere else in my head. I was always thinking, oh, I could be there or I could be there. I could be there. Or I wish I was there. But now when I'm skiing, I don't have that as long as I'm skiing. And I'm so excited I get down uh, to lunch to join Barney. And we go over to the Blue Slope. And I'm going to ski with him. And now it's a two-die day. It is a perfect day that reminds me of the old days, the Thornton Burgess books. My father used to read to me the West Wind stories when you'd see the cloud with a face and a wind puffing out of its lips. That's how the clouds looked. Only there weren't wind. It was these long chains of snow flurries. And then the clouds would pass and the bright California sun would light the packed snow. And there were furrows where other people had skied. And we were hopping through the furrows in other people's rhythm. And we were riding up. We were dancing in the day. I was with a man and we were just, we weren't talking. We were skiing together. And I couldn't stop. At the end of the day, they had to restrain me. I tried to bribe the lift operator for another run. Barney said, easy, easy, easy. You've been skiing for seven hours. I've never done anything for seven hours in my life. I never thought of death once. We went back to the condo. Barney was driving. I was flatlining. Oh, not an anxious thought in my head. Oh, boy. Unwind in front of the gas log. (laughs) 
have a couple of beers and watch the Weather Channel. <laughs> Whatever. Deep, deep, dreamless, oblivion sleep. The following day I woke up and I thought, oh my God, now this skiing in this life and I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to come down from this mountain. I want to figure out how to stay up here, how to make a living up here, how to just ski. I had a mission. I never felt a mission in my life, a quest. I wanted to ski across America to New England. <laughs> I saw myself like John Cheever's story, The Swimmer. Burt Lancaster did the film. Swimming his way back to that deserted house through backyard swimming pools. Only I was going to do it on ski slopes and use my monologue as a vehicle and begin booking them by ski areas. <laughs> and I did. I booked Grey's Anatomy, first of all, where I had to conquer the big master, Ajax uh, in Aspen. And I booked, uh, I booked it at the Wheeler Opera House, and they gave me a, a condo, a free ski lesson, and a, a passes to ski, and some money. It was a very good deal. And now, uh, um, <laughs> it was. And, and um, now basically in Aspen, there are two mountains. You've got Ajax, the big, giant father figure, and, and then you've got uh, Buttermilk, which is like the reclining lady. You can ski over her breasts and through her thighs, no problem. Go, oh, at the end of the day, go over and get beat up by the father. You see, the, the ticket is interchangeable. So I am having my ski lesson on Buttermilk, of course, on, on the lady, and um, I, I am uh, hanging out, waiting for the ski instructor to come out. Uh, nothing to do, so I'm, I'm reading whatever I can get my hands on. I'm reading the back of my ski ticket. I will never do that again. Skiing is inherently a dangerous sport, which can result in personal injury, including catastrophic injury, death, or property damage. God forbid property damage. If you are not willing to assume the risk set forth in this warning, please do not ski in this area. Sign it. Sign the ticket. Sign for the skis. It's a little stubby 160s, so I can turn easily. Sign, sign, sign. Sign my life away and wait for my ski instructor to come out. And he skis out. Says, hi, guy. <laughs> okay, let's begin. Sterling, is it all right if I call you Sterling? <laughs> and let's begin with a little joke, Sterling. Do you know the difference between a uh, snowboard and a vacuum cleaner? No, I don't. Depends on where you touch the dirt bag. Okay. Ah, slight bend in the knees. Corresponding bend in the hip joint. Great. Okay. Crouch and lift at the same time. Good. Parallel skis, flat on the snow. Skis slightly edged, all right? Now, using uh, turns on each traverse, we can go down the mountain at any speed we so desire. Uh, now, wait. 90% of the weight on the downhill ski. Good. Wait forward, don't sit back. All right, nothing natural about this posture, Sterling. Nothing natural about it. Uh, hey, don't cave in, all right? Flex your elbows, wait over the balls of your feet. Please don't stick your butt out. Now, your basic traverse stance is often referred to as that of a banana, right? Banana arching, skin on the banana, still think your ski suit is a banana skin if that's going to help. Now, you're uh, really falling down the mountain, Sterling. Another snowboarder shoots between us. That little f I am just waiting for one of them to hit me, and I'm going to cash in as HMO and retire. 
Okay. Parallel skis, up a ski is slightly leading in front of the downhill ski. Shift your weight and let the upper ski lead out. All right, facing down the fall line. Basically, you're falling down the mountain. Okay, point your belly button down the hill. Banana arching. Okay, you stand and watch while I traverse down the mountain, and then you follow. I stood there like a frozen banana <laughs> and ended up going down to the Wheeler Opera House to perform Grey's Anatomy, my ironic hypochondriacal voice made all the exhausted skiers laugh. (laughs) Following day, I was determined to set skis on Ajax, even though my guidebook said under no circumstances should it begin and go on this mountain. And on the way to Ajax, I was recollecting my Greek uh, uh, history, uh, Ajax, hero of the Trojan Wars, who mistook a a flock of sheep for warriors, killed them, uh, hallucinated, killed them, and then killed himself out of humiliation. That's Ajax. So I arrive, and I get the uh, the, the, the uh, map, and I'm choosing what's, what trail I should go on based on the name. And I choose Dipsy Doodle and Pussyfoot. <laughs> so I'm standing on Dipsy Doodle talking to myself. Skis parallel and slightly apart. Slightly. Slightly means slightly. <laughs> Relax arms, flex elbows, flex elbows. Why did I let him call me Sterling? <laughs> Crouch and lift at the same time. Wait over the balls of your feet. I, now, look, I never knew my feet had balls. <laughs> I've heard the expression, but I have never contacted them. You know, basically, I felt like a bad geometry class. I felt all fragmented. I couldn't, I couldn't really get it all together. And Boogie and these other skiers are going by me, full speed, doing that little Austrian vadel, you know, that tight-ass little bunny hop, the skis close together, boom, 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 boom. They go by. With their nose up in the air, they go, on your left. I mean, you're not allowed to fall on HX. If you fall, they go by and go, on your left, buttermilk. They say, you're right, guy, can I help you up? But I'm skiing. I'm skiing and I'm going down. I haven't got any inner cheerleader voice. No voice in me saying you're doing great. But you know what I don't have anymore? I don't have the self-deprecating, you're shit, you're no good, you'll never master this voice because the mountain's knocking the shit out of me. It's hitting me. It took that voice away. It's such a whoa that beats you up. It's a plummeting. It's like the father I never wrestled with. I'm down, boom, and I'm up again. And I'm surviving it and I'm skiing and I experience this Zen miracle. I'm hungry without looking at my watch. And I ski on down. I don't ski the whole mountain. It's just halfway down to the little gourmet restaurant, Bonnie's. Hey, I feel like a skier now. I can eat with them on the deck. Take my skis off. Bomb them in the snow. Clomp on down like a man on the moon. Big ski boots crouching on the deck. Order a well-done hamburger to avoid E. coli. <laughs> and sit out in the sun. Oh, my God. i got to pinch myself. The fat lady hasn't sung yet. Is this really happening to me? Is this Buddy Gray, great failure of Barrington, Rhode Island, skiing in Aspen, alone, able to be alone? And it occurred to me that this was a moment I was having for myself. I was doing this. I didn't even know what that meant. I never had the experience in my life. And I'm saying, this is really cool. I like this. And also, oh, I see three people coming to me. Oh, oh, it's all over. These people have probably seen my show. I can tell by the way the woman's smiling. And they come over. I like them. They're locals. The first woman's name, she's Maggie. She's a a male woman, uh, a letter carrier. (laughs) 
she's on a long lunch break. And uh, <laughs> her boyfriend, uh, Jake, who's a contractor, and then Martha, a friend of theirs, who's a ski instructor for the blind, actually, over at Buttermilk. And they're all taking time off, the day off, to ski, and they want to ski with me. And I say, oh, no, no, I'm not really a skier. I'm just a faller, really. I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm up here falling down. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, I'm having a good time alone. It's fine. No, no, they're not interested. They've skied the mountain hundreds of times. And Jake's trying to give me this line that pack skiing is how I really learned skiing in a group. He's got this theory, the Balinese dance masters, he's telling me. That's how they teach their students kinetically, so they're dancing right. All right, all right, so, all right. So. I'll give it a try. So we go over, and damn it all, if those skis don't feel too big. They always do when I put them on at first. I feel like a two-year-old trying to walk again. They're crossing. I'm flopping around. I fall down. They're waiting. They're laughing. They're doing fine. But damn it, Jake is right. The act of mimicking me is able for some reason to connect with him and begin to ski like him, to emulate him. So my skis are more parallel. I'm getting up more speed. In fact, I'm almost like uh, not crashing into him, but becoming one with him until I try to get back to myself and I crash because I don't know how to make the transition. And but uh, but something's happening that's, that, that is right. And Maggie's the provocateur. She keeps passing over a snuffed-out marijuana joint that want, she wants to relight every time we're on the lift, you know. And I, oh, no, no, thanks, really. Uh, that stuff just makes me think. I, I don't... Uh... <laughs> well, actually, think is the wrong word. I'd be a scholar if that was the case. I... It just makes me grind my gears, junkhead, around and around, garbage, nothing productive, really. I mean, if I was dancing all night at a club or something, I'd take it. But, uh, oh, Maggie says, really, Spalding, skiing is like dancing in the day. It's like dancing in the light. Don't say no, just say maybe. <laughs> so next time round, Maggie and I are alone on a double lift, and she just passes it, lights it, and passes it over. I don't think about it. I just go, pass <laughs> it back. And I begin to think, I begin to think so hard that I don't get off the lift. And it goes around. <laughs> they stop, but I'm hanging up there. He goes, hey, rock and roll. Hey, man, having a good day? They're helping me down. The skis are falling off. They are too big. I'm thinking. And the marijuana is making them seem too big. But I have to say, in defense of the hemp, it really does loosen up my hips. <laughs> Not that you're supposed to have loose hips when you're skiing. But boogie on down. I'm skiing with Jake now, and I like that, I, this new male thing, you know, because usually I always felt I had to talk to a guy. We're just skiing together, and I'm up at the top of the mountain waiting for Martha and Maggie to come up, and Jake says, I want to show you something. Oh, God, no, he's going to try to teach me something. Suddenly I feel like a frozen banana. <laughs> no, he said, don't, don't freeze up. You're doing fine in your turns, but you know what? After you turn, you're sliding down the mountain, and you're sliding down the mountain because you're not edging. Just watch me for a minute. And I look over. Oh, wow, I'm able to see it. I'm able to take it in. He rolls his skis in just slightly into the mountain and edges in. Oh, yes, I'm behind him, and what a difference an edge makes. <laughs> we are skiing now down Ruthie's Run, a terrain that was so steep I was simply crashing down it before, and now I am realizing that you have to be out of control to be in control. For a second, you have to be falling down that fall line and then catch yourself, and you have to have the leap of faith, and I never had faith in my life until that day. You've got to believe you're going to turn right in order to turn right, and it's leap of faith and around. Wow, I doubted everything until this moment, and leap of faith and I'm around, and I'm falling into the light, and I can feel the gravity pulling me, the earth, the mother, and leap of faith I'm around and leave of faith I'm around and leave of faith I'm around and Maggie shoots behind me with stereo earphones on yelling think of it as a white wall of death <laughs> and I'm able to keep my balance in the face of this and I know where she gets her kicks 
And I know she's hoping I'll do a monologue about this and she will be in it. <laughs> we have a wonderful afternoon. It's timeless. It's so energized. It's so, oh, it's so. And they say, they bid farewell. They say, it's almost 4 o'clock. We've got to run the mountain. You download. I said, no. I want to ski down with you guys. Spalding, you know what? It's really not safe. There's only one way down the mountain at the end of the trail. It's Spa Gulch. And the locals refer to that often as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. <laughs> it's icy. It's dark. The shadow comes in. Maggie blew her ACL attendance out last year. You could hear them pop up the gulch like hot spaghetti. Don't want to do it. I do. <laughs> sure choice. So I opt. What my plan is I'm going to follow Martha, the blind ski instructor. I hadn't skied. I, I hadn't skied with her yet, ski instructor for the blind. She was like a sleek weasel, really, really smooth, fast, confident, and I'm right behind her. And what's exciting now is that we're running the whole mountain, so the rhythm starts to build. And before, we were just skiing around at the top, and we're starting down, and there's all this new terrain. And then as we get closer to Spark Gulch, I can see what they mean. The conversion is like an L.A. freeway. All the trails are going into that one place. And behind me, I can hear the snowboarders shredding. Shear, shear, shear. And all of a sudden, Martha goes straight up the edge of the gulch and hops around and comes down, and I'm behind her. I don't know who's doing this. Are the skis skiing me? And I go up, and all of a sudden, I see a cobalt blue sky, a new moon, and whoop, I'm around. I see amber bright sun on snow and dark shadow, and down and up and around and down and up and around and up and down and up. Chunk, 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 chunk. Bow! Born out of the thighs of Ajax. And Jake comes over and gives me a big high five. My first. And I say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for skiing with me today. And I bid them farewell and go into my equipment into the rental place. And the guy says, hey, man, you should either be dead or in the hospital. I said, what are you talking about? You hear I skied the gulch? No. You stole some lawyer's 195s at lunch. He, was, he had a $125 lesson he had to take. He had to take on your stubby little 160s. <laughs> He's looking for you, man. I mean, you skied on the wrong bindings all afternoon. It's a wonder you didn't break your leg. You're a f***ing blessed, man. <laughs> and with his blessings, I felt initiated. I had skied Ajax, skied Spa Gulch, and graduated in one day from 160 to 195. Spotting Gray, an excerpt from his monologue, It's a Slippery Slope. We recorded Spotting Gray at the world premiere of his monologue at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. It happened in Sun Valley, not so very long ago. Favorite one to sit by your side, cuddle up in the sleigh, giddy up, Nelly Gray, and away we go. While you listen to the sleigh bells ring, yodeling to your baby, 
You'll feel nice and warm no matter how cold it may be. Take a look at little Jack and Jill. They ski down a hill, that's a snowplow turn. And look, there's a spill, there's a spill on the hill. When you're down, it's a thrill to go up again. Everybody ought to learn to ski, for that's how we first met. Jack and Jill that came down a hill When I looked at you my heart took a spill Took a spill on a hill It's a thrill that I can't forget Coming up, swimming lessons Shooting potatoes 450 feet in the air Instructions on how to have an affair And more in a minute When our program continues American Life on Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme and invite a variety of writers and performers to tackle that theme with monologues, short fiction, mini-documentaries, found tape, whatever they can think of. Our theme today is Lessons. We are at Act 2 of our program, Swimming Lesson. You know, some lessons, I think the best classes, always teach more than concrete skills. They help overcome fears, they change people in more profound ways. This next story comes from Scott Carrier, who lives in Salt Lake City. My wife, Hillary, is a beautiful swimmer, relaxed, graceful. She just sort of slimmers around on top of the water. I didn't know this about her when I met her. I knew she grew up on a lake in New Hampshire, but I had never seen her swim until this summer when we spent a few weeks at the lake visiting her parents. She liked to swim at night, go far out in the darkness, and then turn around and swim back to the light on her parents' house. So this summer we were there at the lake, and my wife and her mother decided it was time for our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter to take swimming lessons. I said, no, she's too young. And my wife said, Mr. Switzer likes to start them at three-and-a-half. I said, who's Mr. Switzer? And my mother-in-law said, he gives lessons in the pool next to his house. It's a nice pool. He taught Hillary to swim. He taught all my kids to swim. He went to Harvard and then coached at a private school with a good reputation. I said, oh, well, then of course. And my wife said, Monday morning, we've already signed her up. You can come with us and see for yourself. He's a good teacher. So Monday morning, we drove to Al and Betsy Switzer's aquatic school in Center Sandwich. The pool was dark blue the color of glacial ice, 60 feet long and nearly ringed by mothers sitting in white plastic lawn chairs. There were about 18 kids in the pool, a couple of pretty college girls teaching the intermediate and advanced swimmers, and Mr. Switzer, 
deep tan, square jaw, big muscles, in the pool at the shallow end with the beginners. Three boys and three girls hanging onto the edge, crying and shivering, or actually it was just the three boys who were crying. One of them tried to climb out of the pool, and Mr. Switzer pulled him back in, saying, You stay there. You stay right there and don't move from that spot. That, of course, made the other two boys freak out even more, and one of them was crying for his mom to come get him, and Mr. Switzer pointed to the mom and then pointed to the gate, and she popped right up and walked out. Five, five, head down. In the lesson, Mr. Switzer took the kids one by one and stood over them, moving their arms and legs through the water. He did this even to the kids who were nearly hysterical. Kick, 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 kick. Then he had them go under the water, keeping their eyes open to look and grab his fingers. Then he had them get out and walk over to the edge where the water was deeper. They were all standing there, shaking, holding their little hands over their little hearts. He was going to make them jump. Now listen, everybody. What you're going to do is you're going to jump to me and I'm going to catch you. All right? I'm going to catch everybody. Stand up, Alice. First, he told my daughter to jump. And she did, and just about landed on his head. She was kind of screwing around and having too much fun. Next, the other two girls, and they jumped pretty easily too. But then the boys, and the boys were afraid. They were just little kids who hadn't learned to hide their fear, what looked like true fear, not some sudden fright caused by a bad dream or a monster movie, but scared, silly panic, their bodies quivering like jello, their faces filled with grief. I'll catch you. Come on. Go. Jump. Jump. Up. Go. Jump. Come on. Go. Jump. <laughs> but they did it. Or at least two of them summoned their courage, leaned into their fear, and jumped. For them, it was as wild and as real as it gets. But the other little one just couldn't do it. So they pushed him. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? What did I, tell you? What did I say? I catch you. Yeah, and I said, I catch you. Did I catch you? Yeah. After the lesson, I introduced myself to Mr. Switzer and asked him about his methods. We, uh, as soon as we start working the arms with a three-and-a-half-year-old, we're basically working with the arms the way we want them to work later on. And you saw today, a couple of the real criers, they don't know what they're in for. But then they find, I'm a good guy. They find that if I say I'm going to catch him or I'm going to do something, I'm not going to fool him. You see, this, uh, the classes you're watching this afternoon, some of those beginner one classes, by the end of this week, they'll all go off in the deep end. And most of them will go off from the diving board, which is one meter up, and uh, they'll swim to, the ladder, uh, swim to the ladder. Now, most of them will not have anywhere near a perfect arm stroke. Many of them will just kick to the ladder, but what that does is is gives them with the head in the water again it gives them that confidence that if they should fall off a dock they can look around on the water and kick or somehow get to the to the uh, point of safety The second day there was less crying and by the second week things had calmed down to the point where I started paying attention to the intermediate and advanced swimmers Kids, mainly 8 to 12 years old, swimming laps, all practicing the same slow stroke, 
reaching far out ahead and pulling slowly back, relaxed, breathing rhythmically, relaxed. They were learning to swim gracefully, gliding across the pool like schoolgirls walking with books on their heads. They were all learning to swim exactly like my wife. I mean, he was strict. He was a strict teacher, but he's not mean, you know. I mean, he used to say things like, if you don't relax your hand, I'm going to break with a hammer. But you know that, I mean, he wasn't being mean. It was just, that's just what he would say. I mean, somehow, he has a sense of humor, and as a kid, you know that. I think probably the most important thing about his teaching is that he does, he expects you to do it. And that, kids know what you expect of them. If you don't really expect them to listen to you, they know that. Stephen, I want you to fly. I want you to fly. Are you ready? Fly! Come on! Come on! The final part of the final lesson, Mr. Switzer took his beginning class to the diving board for them to jump and swim to the ladder. This is the mostest of the funnest. I don't want. This is, you want to do this, don't you? This is the fun. You want to do this, don't you? I don't want. Colin, Colin, you want to do this, don't you? They all jumped, and they all swam. And then it was over. (laughs) Now our daughter Alice has a card saying she's passed the beginner one level at the Switzer Aquatic School. Next thing I know, she'll be swimming far out into the lake at night. This is Scott Carrier. Teacher's pet. I wanna be teacher's pet. I wanna be huddled and cuddled as close to you as I can get. That's the lesson. Three, shooting lesson. Well, my sister Randy has two kids, both boys, and she's the kind of mom who declared early on, no guns in the house. She thought it taught the wrong value. She's still, you know, kind of your basic liberal soccer mom. 
as long as the phrases come up in our national debate. That's that's my sister, soccer mom. But by the time each nephew, Ben and Sam, turned two years old, it became clear that the drive to play with guns, for whatever reason, was more powerful than one mom could stop. They would make guns out of anything. They'd make guns out of sticks. They'd make guns out of crayons. Once we were having a spaghetti dinner and I saw Benny make a gun out of a noodle. He tried to shoot someone with a noodle. Boys and guns. Boys and guns. Well, Kitty Feldy is a reporter who's best known to public radio audiences for her coverage of the O.J. Simpson trial. But not long ago. She headed out into the hills above Berkeley with her cousin's husband, the guy whose name is Jim Gray. And as you'd expect from a Berkeley-area family, Jim Gray is the kind of liberal who would not go out, you know, with a big rifle on weekends shooting at game. He's not, you know, <laughs> killing little rabbits and squirrels and stuff to feed the family or anything. He doesn't march on Washington to preserve our rights to assault weapons. He's not a member of the NRA. But even this liberal guy in liberal Berkeley, even he found a gun to love. And it turned out that it was a very particular kind of gun. It was a kind of gun that every time he showed it to another man, the reaction was always the same. The guy always said, I want one of those too. It was a potato gun. In his front yard, overlooking sparsely populated hills, he gave Kitty a lesson in its operation. Everybody in the neighborhood is making these? Everybody in the neighborhood. This is my spud gun, a homemade spud gun made out of ABS sewer pipe. Um, it's a piece of inch-and-a-half ABS to a reducer that goes to a three-inch ABS combustion chamber, uh, female coupling, and a male plug. The propellant is hairspray, which is the amazing part. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, this is... Who thought this up? Uh... It was shown to me actually by a guy who's almost who's sort of quasi militia. He uh, he he found it. That his buddy showed it to him. They like to fire it at night for the blue flame. And um, I made one here, and instantly all my neighbors had to have one. My neighbor right next door built one. But anyway, it has potatoes as ammunition. Cram the potato down the barrel. It's actually a potato musket, also referred to as a potato cannon. But I call it the spud gun. You didn't use all of the potato there. Uh, well, only that will fit in the inch-and-a-half pipe. You have to use a potato that's bigger than the inch-and-a-half pipe so that you totally fill the pipe up. And now you're using this long doweling. Yes, it's a, a, a ramrod, uh, just a musket people used, pushing the wadding down into the barrel. The next step is three one-second blasts of Aquanet hairspray into the combustion chamber. Quickly putting the male plug in. He's screwing on the end to this plastic piping device. Now, watch this direction. Oh, wait, this is going to be really loud, isn't it? i got to get back. This is too loud Stand for my ears. Yeah, how are you igniting this? This is a, um, a Coleman Lantern igniter. You spin the knurled in and you get a spark on the inside. Wait, i got to back up. Okay. 
Oh, now the spud has taken a lovely arc about 100 feet away and has dropped behind the trees over there. And that, it's totally useless. We uh, just wasted a potato. Now, now what are you doing? Well, I'm using the vice grips to unfasten. It looks like a giant pair of pliers, about a three-inch wide end on the pair of pliers. You're unscrewing the coupling? That's true. To reload. To reload. It's a slow process. If you were being attacked by an army, it would, you'd be dead by now. I would think the liability problems of having spuds landing in people's yards, perhaps on their bodies, would be a problem. Yes, that's why we sort of uh, do it secretly. Oh, a good one, a good one. I can't even see it. Yeah, that was a good about 450 feet, something like that. That was a long one. So none of the neighbors have complained about this? They've just asked, how can I make one myself? That's pretty much been the, uh, usually it's a guy thing, it's a guy thing. And uh, usually uh, I show it to the guys, and they instantly want me to either make one for them or show them how to make one. And uh, I'd say there's at least half a dozen spud guns that have, that have sprung from the original here. Uh, the, it, the legality of the thing is a little bit questionable. I've actually asked police, and the police wanted me to, <laughs> wanted me to show them how to build one when I described it to them. I can just jump in here for a second. So Kitty stands out there with um, her cousin's husband, and at some point a neighbor comes over, and they get to talking about all the improvements they're making in the spud gun. And as they talk, you start to realize the boy desire for gun and gunness is so powerful that these guys are gradually reinventing the gun. They are turning the they are slowly turning the spud gun into a real gun. Well, as soon as I showed it to. Uh my neighbors, uh, they decided to do design improvements. They, uh, they tried increasing the size of the combustion chamber. They tried decreasing the size of the combustion chamber. They, they tried putting a valve in so they could inject pure propane as opposed to the hairspray to get a more explosive mixture. Um, they tried different materials for the, the gun itself. And here comes Tom with a couple of version 2 with a longer barrel. Let's go so talk to Tom. Yeah. So, Tom, this is the Mach 2 version? Yeah. We've decided that the longer barrels don't really make any difference. Uh, both Jim and I have tried shooting next to each other. Both have about the same range. We've also used propane as opposed to hairspray. That doesn't seem to matter either. So. Whoa. That had a nice <laughs> arc to it. Very nice arc. I took it, to the, took it to the job site, and uh, the roofer was up on the roof, roofing, and I fired it off kaboom, and it landed. It was, we were up on a, on a hillside that it arced way out there, and the roofer poked his head over and said, you've either got to make me one or show me how to make one. It's <laughs> <laughs> so is there a name for this loose-knit organization of uh, Well, not yet. We're actually trying to avoid um, any... We're, we're hoping not to, not, not, not to be considered a group. We don't want it, we don't want the attention of, of any law enforcement agencies that would might track us down and consider us militia or, or some other uh, 
I mean, there's no unifying political. There is no, absolutely no unifying political. No, this cuts across the spectrum from liberal to conservative. No, nothing unifying politically at all about these things. It's a, it's a guy thing. It's, it's, that's all there is. Kitty Feldy. Did you say I've got a lot to learn? Well, don't think I'm trying not to learn. Since this is the perfect spot to learn, teach me tonight. Starting with the ABC of it, right down to the XYZ of it. Help me solve the mystery of it. Teach me tonight. The skies are blackboard high above you, and if a shooting star goes by, I'll use that star to write I love you a thousand times across the sky. One thing isn't very clear, my love. Should the teacher stand so near, my love? Graduation's almost here, my love. Teach me tonight. Found tape. Well, our program today is about lessons, and um, when we turn to John Connors, a guy who helps us find music for our program for songs, when we asked him for songs, he said that it turns out that there are lots of records that are lessons of various types. In fact, I've got a whole big bunch of them here that he gave us. Here's one on wine from a guy. Um, How do I know which wine to serve at dinner, Mr. Seashell? Which is a vintage wine, and what is the difference between vintage and non-vintage? Well, this record right here answers the questions on that. Here's Bazaar's Secret Formula for a Beautiful New You. But I have to say, the favorite of our little radio staff is one, one that it defies all, all normal description. Let's just go to it, shall we? Hello, I'm Helen Gurley Brown, and I wrote a book called Sex and the Single Girl. I had so many things left over to say, not necessarily to single girls, but to married girls and men that I'm putting some of them on this record. There's so much to cover, really, that I think we'll just move right along. Let's start with some advice to men on how to have an affair. Now, I'm not for promiscuity, but I think it's ridiculous to pretend that it doesn't exist, and I think there's far less hurt and more joy for everybody if certain rules are followed. The way not to have an affair start, in my opinion, if you're a married man, is to run to the girl and say, Honey... My wife's taken the kids to the country. The coast is clear for you and me. The fact that this is a convenient time for you has absolutely nothing to do with the situation. It it certainly isn't any aphrodisiac. It might even be more flattering to the girl if your wife were in town. Another thought. On the first date, don't suggest that obscure little lobster house 50 miles up the coast, which you think is delightfully quaint. She knows what you're doing. You're hiding her out. In the beginning, at least, be sure you go first class. All right, let's say the affair is on. How do you keep her happy? 
Never assume the physical relationship is the all-out rewarding thing for her that it is for you. It just isn't. Even if she does enjoy your beautiful bronzed body, and you know she does, this is America. She's a nice girl. She's the product of what her mother and her grandmother told her, and uh, they probably told her never to do what she's doing with you. Also, her body needs to have a baby. A lot of men offer her sex, not your superior brand, of course, but what she'd really like to hear from somebody is an offer of marriage. Presents take the pressure off, so do give them. Money is a perfectly wonderful present. You know, it isn't half as insulting as you'd like to think. A nice share of General Motors or a U.S. e-bond tucked in with a bottle of Arpege really are very hard to take offense at. Don't expect your girl to share your wish not to be seen or to keep the lipstick off your collar. That's your responsibility. Maybe it sounds perverse, but a girl may actually take a certain offbeat pride in being seen with somebody else's attractive husband. If you do run into friends of the family, don't try to burrow your way to China. Just just smile and be gracious and introduce everybody all around if you're trapped. No explanations and no apologies. Never drink up her booze without replacing it. You really ought to bring a lot more than you consume. Never, never, never let her spend her birthday alone, even if you have to lie your way into purgatory to get out of the house. Never lie to her about little things. The big lie you're living, that someday the two of you are going to be married, it's going to be hard enough to explain when the time comes. Be sure she can trust you in smaller matters. Treat your girl with great dignity, like a princess. Never, never cheat on her with anyone but your wife. The uh, record is called Lessons in Love, Helen Gurley Brown. Um, some of the other little sections on here, How to Love a Man if You Aren't Pretty, Black Magic for Non-Glamour Girls. It works, too, it says. Unfaithful Wives' Tales, How They Out-Cheat Their Unsuspecting Mates. How to Love a Boss. Ways a girl can make herself invaluable, keeping him happy and her fireproof. How to talk to a man in bed. Um, and uh, let's see. Little man, you'll have a busy day. You can be especially successful with women if you're short. And, uh, and here's this one. Now I want to talk about secretaries. A secretary offers the only kind of polygamy we recognize in this country. The chance to have a second wife at the same time you have your first one and not go to jail. If you select her carefully, she can be the loveliest of all French benefits. And to think, the company pays for her. Turning your secretary into a girlfriend has one big advantage. You know where she is most of the time. If that's what you want, then I suggest you just follow the preceding rules about getting any other girl to the brink and keeping her happy after she's there. However... I'm inclined to go along with a Broadway musical number that says uh, a secretary is not a toy. Why not let one of the other guys at the office hire the gorgeous girl for a secretary and then you borrow her for whatever you had in mind? And in that way, you can keep your own secretary to do more important things like running your life and bolstering your ego and protecting you and mothering you and covering for you and uh, sending out for sandwiches. If the girl who should be doing all that as a ravishing redhead that you're off your rocker about, you'll wind up doing those things for her. Besides, 
All romances end, or they end in marriage, and you'd, you'd soon be out of a secretary again. If you want to play it smart and have your secretary love you and stay with you a long, long time, then follow these rules. Bring her presents from your trips, a, a baby kangaroo. All right, all right, all right. Um, let's see. Let's, let's, let's move on, shall we, in our little collection. In our little collection here. We sincerely hope this record will be helpful in teaching your parakeet to talk. Remember that your bird is an imitator and learns to talk by listening to what you say. Not only words and sounds, but inflections. Don't say, good morning. Say, good morning. The beautiful thing about this particular record is that it is so much more than, um, than just practical how-to. It doesn't just give you the important advice like be diligent, pick a time every day to speak to your bird, make sure you're not trying to talk to your bird when he's eating, drinking, or playing. It, it encourages you. It tells you how to, how to take the right tone. And then it offers proof. There are people who still doubt that a parakeet can actually talk. So we have recorded here the voice of one Chicago parakeet conversing with his owner. He is six years old and has a 400-word vocabulary. Hello, everybody. What is your name? Where do you live, darling? I think you're wonderful. Do you want some breakfast? It's really just amazing what they can get animals to do today, huh? Well, that's that's from our little collection. Omnis Galia tres partes de visa est. I'm learning my Latin and I'm passing the test. That means that all of God's divided in parts of three. I'm learning my Latin. Get a load of me. I'm a V. Well, our program was produced today by Peter Clowney and myself, with Lee Spiegel and Nancy Updike, contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and the fabulous Margie Rockland. Special thanks today to John Connors for musical help, to Jay Allison and Christina Egloff, to the Goodman Theater, where we recorded Spalding Gray, to Alyssa Regas, to Debbie Mitchell and Kathy Augusta, and to Dr. Michael Bulmar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Production out from Jorge Just, Julie Snyder, Emmy Takahara, Sylvia Lemus, Todd Bachman, and Consuliary Saraval. To buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or you know you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet at www.thislife.org. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Marilyn Oakley-Thorne, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who recorded this at a recent staff meeting. It's the most of the funnest. I know. This is, you want to do this. No, Myra Glass, back next week, if we have the courage, with more stories of this American life. PRI. Public Radio International.